swimming around and we had a great time. Anyway, without further ado, let's put our hands together for Pastor Sam's song from Solomon's Porch. Amen. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. What's up, SP? <laughs> we have a... Uh, well, why don't you guys just stand, say hello to everyone. This is our church in Hong Kong, or a little part of our church. And, and stand and stare. You can remain standing. Uh, we're all here because of these two guys. They got married yesterday. Thanks. Uh, I had a beautiful uh, ceremony at the Sheila, and uh, I emailed him this morning. Did you get my email? I said, uh, Stan, bro, you just raised the bar for all of the SP weddings <laughs> going forward. Ken, you know, and uh, be very interesting. Yeah, so we're here for the wedding, and uh, um, I, you know, I've been connecting with Pastor Christian, and uh, asked, hey, can you come and speak at the church when you're here? And I said, sure, why not, right? And see what we can do and see what can happen. But I've uh, been having a, a great time with your pastor, uh, a really good guy. Obviously, you already know that. And, uh, um, uh, it's been, you know, it's been a kind of an interesting journey for me. Actually, uh, your church, don't take this the wrong way, right? And so, because, uh, you know, you may, you, you can, I guess, in, in a certain way. But you guys remind me a lot of my youth group, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> again, don't take it the wrong way because our youth group was awesome. And, uh, and we, we had a, a real move of God, you know. And, uh, in fact, uh, since, uh, you guys, no one was there in the morning, right? So this is a totally different, okay. All right, so maybe uh, I'll have a little more liberty with you guys as well. You know, uh, our, my, I, I have a Southern Baptist background, and I actually got saved quite late. And uh, I became a youth pastor in Assemblies of God Church. You know, no experience, no theological training. You know, I just, I, I would say I couldn't preach, but I could yell, you know. <laughs> and for kids, that's good preaching, right? And so, and so I would just yell all the time and uh, God just started moving in our group, and I took our kids actually to the mountains. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in church. So I was never part of a youth group, you know, and so I just, you know, my job description was you got to take them to a retreat. I'm like, what's that? You know, but you got to take them out somewhere, and I just thought retreat was meant camping, you know, because I used to be in the Boy Scouts, you know, and so I love going camping, and so I, I basically rounded up our whole youth group, right? What about 60 kids and, you know, and about 20 teachers, and we took off for Kings Canyon. And before then, I, w- I, started, uh, I started this journey of hearing God's voice, you know, of just really being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And uh, we needed to f- find this place. What I ended up doing is I ended up for the whole week, and I went from, you know, I'm from Southern California, and I drove in my truck, right, from Southern Cal, and I drove all the way up to Yosemite. And I just stopped at campsite after campsite. And I would just literally just get out of the car. And I just take a fresh breath and I look around and says, Lord, is this where you want us to be this summer? And if I heard no, I just get back in the car and I go somewhere else. I went to about 15 campsites that summer. And I finally ended up at Kings Canyon, you know, this, this one particular campsite uh, that's in Sequoia below Yosemite. And I just felt that the Spirit of God said, This is a place. And so uh, we made preparations. I got one of my assistants, and he went and made reservations at this place. Uh, about a month later, we got this note saying that the campsite is full. And so you, you, you can't go, basically. You know? and, and then it's this dilemma, right? It's what we'll call a word check. You know, it's like, well, did I, did I hear God's word or did I not? You know, and, and, I, and I felt like, Lord, I felt like I heard your word. And then so you've you got to move on that conviction, right? And so we basically went on this retreat. And so we packed up. We had like eight vans. We took 80 kids. I didn't tell any of the elders, right? We didn't tell anyone in the church. We're going to the retreat. And I, I just sent one of my teachers ahead, you know, to go and basically find a place for us in this campsite. And so he went like a couple hours before us. And so, you know, I'm like praying the whole time, you know, going there because, man, we might have to just come right back. You know, it's an eight-hour drive. And, uh, and so we go, and sure enough, we found this site, you know, and... Uh, it was actually in this place, and, and there were some cancellations last minute. And so we got 80 kids, you know, in this, in this campsite, and we went to this retreat. You know, and so I, the whole retreat, I was actually teaching on hearing God's voice. And I, w- I would uh, lead people basically in some prophetic activation. 
And, uh, uh, but we didn't really call it that. We just said, all right, we're just going to hear from Dad. You know, we're just going to hear God's voice. You know, real simple stuff. And what, would ha- what started happening is, as we started, started teaching and kids, and, and we would basically have people pray for one another, and the kids were just going crazy. They were like looking at each other and saying, hey, how did you know that? Like, how, how did you know I actually prayed that yesterday? How did you know I, that's exactly the situation going on in my life right now? You know, and what happened is when that began to happen, you know, you had these nominal high school kids, right? I actually had sophomores, juniors, and seniors. That was my grade. You know, and all of a sudden, their, their expectation of God just rose up. Because, you know, you're, you're taught all the time that God loves you, but it's not really special because God loves everybody. You know what I mean? So I'm a part of everybody, so that means God loves me. Like, whoop de doo right? I mean, we, I mean, honestly, we don't really care so much in that way. But then when, God's, when God speaks to us through somebody and he shares with us the most intimate details of our life, you realize, you know what? God just doesn't love everybody. God loves me. You know, and something really happens inside. And so what ended up happening is, this is a true story, I, I kid you not. We're at the campsite, and there's a lot of other campers around, right? So there's, we're not in a room or anything. And I preach, you know, to the kids. And it was just my, my typical message was repentance, right? Preach on <laughs> repentance, you know, and I say, you guys need to repent. You know, and so eventually they started to, right? You know, I don't know if they did it on their own. I just scared them into it. And they started repenting. And right then I, I felt that I got this word. And I said, hey, encourage the kids to pray because the enemy is going to come right now to distract them. And so I said, okay, kids are praying. I said, all right, right now, come on, kids. Let's really start praying, really seeking God because the enemy is going to come right now to distract you. Right? And then as soon as I said that, there was this bear standing behind me. I was there. There's a picnic bench behind me, and a bear was on the other side of that bench. Right? And so and I heard this, I heard this, you know, and I turned around and I said, Satan, right? Because I, I thought it was the devil, you know, and I just started speaking in tongues. I was casting out this bear devil. I mean, I serious, I was going crazy. I was in the Boy Scouts, so I know when you got to scare the bear. So I grabbed some pots and pans. I was claying these pots and pans together, right? The coolest thing was my kids that were there, right? About 85% of them actually kept praying. They actually thought I was playing devil's advocate, and I was trying to distract them. You know, you can imagine they were trying to pray, and like, what's good, crazy Pastor Sam with those pots and pans? What's he, what's he trying to do? And I'm, you know, and I mean, other 15%, you know, you guys always have the 15%, the knuckleheads, right? They're like, oh, you know, going crazy and stuff. And, and just, just, I was just going, I mean, just, can you imagine? I'm, I'm just rebuking Satan, you know? And obviously, the other campers really didn't appreciate it that night. And so they, they thought we were a cult, right? And so they went to, they literally went in the morning, they went to the ranger's office and said, these guys are a cult, they're making too much noise, kick them out, you know? And so, but we already paid the fees to be there. And so, but, you know, so basically said, you guys need to move away. You know, if you're going to have your evening meetings, you need to go out and there's this really nice meadow once you go there. And so I went and uh, so we went that night and we put up some lanterns and everything. We had an incredible service and the spirit of God fell. You know, and from a, from a tradition that we come from, it's not very common. You know, and I mean, literally, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit just descended upon the group. And uh, I mean, things were happening. And we actually didn't know that during that time, there was something called the Toronto Blessing that was going on. You know, and that happened, in, I think, in, in June of that year. And our happening was in August. And so, I mean, it was just, it was a sovereign move of God. You know, and, and what up happening is kids got filled. I, I was, uh, and, and uh, we're kind of right outside of L.A., and I was known as like the gangster pastor. You know, partly because I look like a gangster, and the other part is because a lot of kids and gangs would come to the church and get reformed. And so it became a drop-off point for all these gangpes, right, all these uh, gangsters. You know, their parents would hear, hear about our church, and they would drop their kids off, and they would change. And I had these gangsters that were in these, you know, in these gangs and, you know, thinking it all tough and stuff, rolling on the ground, weeping, and saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love I mean, it was just euphoric, you know. And the, the great thing is when they got up, right, because it's not really about what happens on the ground. It happens when you get up. And when they got up, they were changed, and something happened. And that happened over a, a period of a few nights, and... And what ended up happening is, you know, it was a long trip. We're tired. So I told the same guy that went in the beginning, I said, hey, why don't you go back home 
you know, and, and go buy some pizzas, right, and let the kids just go home, right? Because we're coming back into Friday night service. All the parents would be there. And, and what ended up happening is the kids got, a, like, introduction into spiritual warfare. We would, like, we had vans, the brakes, you know, we had about seven, seven or eight vans. And three of the vans, the brakes almost died. But yet we still made it. I mean, it was amazing. We would lose our keys all the time. You know, uh, the cars wouldn't start. And we'd look at the odometer and it would say 666. You know, I mean, just like, kind of like crazy stuff. Yeah, you can call it coincidence if you want, you know. And so, but, but things like that were happening the whole week. You know, and, and, and the kids got a sense. So what happened is I was the first car. And we got out and we actually got a ticket. You know, so the, the girl who was driving the, the, that van actually got a ticket. And so there was, you know, vans behind it. And they saw that and they thought, spiritual warfare. You know, and so what happened is, is they went ahead to the church, and I was just going to go to the church and say, you know, just basically get out, go home, you know, we're tired. And so, but they went right past the pizzas, walked into the sanctuary, and just started praying. You know, and we just think that there was just kind of this, it was just a happening. You know, like, yeah, we went to a retreat, and I guess this kind of stuff happens at a retreat. It was my first retreat, you know. So I thought maybe this is typical retreat stuff, right? But we found out it's not typical, and the kids, they, they, Forgot the food, they walked straight into the sanctuary and started praying, and then the glory came. I'm talking about a, a, a visible, you know, I, you know, I'm not talking about this, you know, like we talk about, yeah, glory, glory. And I'm, I'm talking about a serious, visible expression of God coming into the room where you could feel it. A lot of people, when they move in these circles and in the scriptures, they talk about a mist. And there was a mist in this room. I remember walking into this room, right, in, into this mist, and it was, you could just feel something. Uh, our worship leader was, was leading. It was actually Pastor Eugene, for our guys in, in Hong Kong. And he was leading us in worship. And he, he sang that song, uh, the old Keith Green song. You know, uh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. And I remember I was, kinda, I was right here in the front, and I was on my knees, and I started singing that song. And probably for the first time in my life, I actually meant it. And it was like every part of my being, I wanted to see Jesus. You know, and, and, and I was, I, at that time, I just started weeping, and I could just feel him walk right by me. You know, and it was just, you know, and then the other, other part to that, too, is then I thought I was going to die. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult to, to explain, you know, but if you, if you read the, the histories of revival, you know, like William Seymour, who led Pentecost, you know, the Azusa Street, uh, they would say that when he would preach, uh, the, the fear of God would come over him so strong, they used to hide behind the pulpit and put a crate over his head, actually a shoebox, because he was literally thought he was going to die. You know, and it was the, the most weird, incredible feeling. I thought, I've seen too much. I'm going to die. And I was literally just giving my last rites. So I said, Lord, thank you for this life that you've given to me. You know, I'm not married and don't have kids, but oh well, you know, that's okay. I'm going to heaven kind of thing. I mean, it was, I mean, it was really a crazy experience. And that kind of led us into this charismatic, you know, um, adventure that we've been on for years. And so we have a church in Hong Kong called Solomon's Porch. And uh, it's, it's actually not an English ministry. You know, it's an international ministry. And uh, uh, we minister to the nations there and, and uh, uh, multiple nationalities. Uh, um, it was a really great setting. And one of our core values is we, we, we you know, like to call it naturally supernatural. You know, and we believe that normative Christian behavior, you know, uh, is, is what you see in the Bible. You know, uh, this is normal Christian behavior. And so we want, we, we want to try to do in Hong Kong is to, is to bring a biblical reality, you know, uh, of the life and the presence of God, you know, but in a way that, that normal people can really understand, you know, and that's, that's really kind of our thing, like, you know, like you don't have to be in the clouds, you know, and, you know what I mean? And like, you know, be in the seventh heaven. Uh, there's actually only three in the scriptures, but you know what I mean, right? And, you know, you don't have to commune with God and, you know, and touch an angel every day. You know, that's cool if you do that, right? I mean, I'm not saying that that's not good. That's good stuff too. But just, just being very natural and whatnot. But the journey started all the way back, you know, I guess it was, what, 1994. You know, and it's, it's been an incredible journey. All right, so we're in Hong Kong. I should start preaching. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I can continue to go off for a while. And so a lot of, a lot of the journey and the experiences and all these things um, really culminates really in this message. And the last time I was a pastor Christian, and um, 
you know, we're just talking, and and uh, uh, um, and he had mentioned to me that that he had been teaching on sonship for a whole year. I thought, wow, that's really cool, you know. And so, if it's, you know, right when he said that, I just felt something in my heart. I says, oh man, you know, I got, actually, I got a, I have a series of messages on sonship, you know. So I kind of put it all together into one here, you know, for you guys. And so it won't go that long. So Hebrews chapter eleven, and this is really what I consider my life message. And I'll explain that a little bit more. And my guys from Hong Kong have heard this many times. So you can just intercede. <laughs> I preach this probably about once every three years uh, for our church. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's the hall of faith. So Hebrews 11, let's read from verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Sansom, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Verse 38, key verse, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect." Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, God, for this time, Lord, and we thank you for the revelation of your word, God. We thank you. Lord, for uh, this church, Lord, and what you're doing in this church, God. And so, Lord, I just consider it a privilege to be sharing your prophetic word with them, Lord. And so to that end, God, we ask right now that you release the revelatory ministry of the Holy Spirit in this room. Lord, give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive what the Spirit is saying to each one of us, individually and corporately as a body. Lord, I humble myself, God, and I ask that you use me today, Lord, to preach your prophetic word with power and authority. We bless you, God. We thank you so much, Lord. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Verse 38, men of whom this world was not worthy of. All right, this is a, a verse that's really captivated me for such a long time. You know, and, and I hope that that's an aspiration for every single one of you that call yourself a child of God, that you would live your life in such a way that this world is not worthy of you. I mean, did you know that, first of all? Did you know that this world cannot contain you? Right, this world is literally is not worthy of who you are in Christ. Why don't you turn to one of your neighbors, right, whichever one you think is better looking, and say, hey, good looking. Right, the world is not worthy of you. See, one of the main reasons why that's happening is because we are part of something that's greater than us. You know, we talk about the church. You know, we talk about the body of Christ. You know, and, and all these things. But, but you've got to understand that you are part of something beyond that. There is a cloud of witnesses that surround us. You know, right here in this room, there's a cloud. And every once in a while, if you just quiet yourself, right, you just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, you can hear those voices. You can hear the voices of Abraham and say, Hey, man, just go for it in faith. Right, you can hear Joseph and David, the patriarchs, right? Paul, you know, and others. Daniel says, hey, no matter if you're in the lion's den, God's going to take care of you. Right, we're part of something bigger than we are. You know, and, and, and to that end, what we're talking about here, you know, the title of message today is called Generational Transfer. You know, and what we're talking about is, is taking these things because there's people that have gone before us. That's the cloud of witnesses. And so it's our responsibility in our generation to take what we've received from them, take it, own it, cultivate it, make it even bigger, and then pass it on to the next generation. You know, I went to uh, the Olympics in Beijing uh, in, um, what was it, 2000, 
2008, right? Incredible time. You know, I mean, just really. And we went to uh, the uh, the track and field meet. It was actually the marquee event where Lou was supposed to run, but he got hurt, right? And so he, he ended up not running the race. But we saw the four by 100 meters. You know, the U.S. team. You know, we had great seats, and and we were there. And did you know? You know, Bolt. You know, shattered the world record at that time. Did you know Bolt actually didn't run the fastest 100 meters during the Olympics? Did you know that? He actually didn't. Right? Actually, the guys that ran the fastest 100 meters were the guys that went second, third, and fourth in the 4x100 meters. Right? Because why? Because they had a running start. Right? So they received the torch, and they were already running, and they took off. And so if you actually, you can go online, you can clock. Right? These guys ran much faster than Bolt did, you know, uh, because they had a running start. When we talk about generational transfer, we're talking about taking a running start. Right? So you don't start cold from where you're at, but you grab a hold of, of what's been gone in the past. Right? These patriarchs, this cloud of witnesses that surround us, and then you receive from them. You take it, and then you run with it. In the Old Testament, they had a picture of this. And in the Old Testament, it was through the high priest. You know, and if you, if you understand the office of the priest, it was every generation had one high priest. That's why actually in the, in the New Testament, there's a bit of a controversy because there's Caiaphas and, and I think Ananias was the other one. And so that was the one of the ones that the Romans picked for the high priest. And the other one was the real high priest that came through the Jewish priestly line. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of drama going on there. But there was one high priest every year. And what they would do is when that high priest came into that office, they would take a, a ram's horn, fill it with anointing oil, and they would pour the oil oil over this person, right? And it would go over their hair, their beard. I mean, just go, I mean, just make, really make a huge mess, you know, but the oil represented the spirit. It was the anointing of the spirit in that generation. They had a, they had a, a, a priestly garment and they would pass this garment down to generation after generation. And so you can imagine you're the one getting anointed that year. You have the fragrance or the anointing of every single anointing of the generation before Mixed now with your anointing of your generation, and then that thing's passed to the next one. It's a really beautiful picture, right? And so maybe one generation, their anointing may have been like giving or sacrifice or missions or worship, you know, or carpentry, you know, or you know what I mean, like crafts, you know. And, and so whatever it was, that anointing would pass on to the next anointing, right? And so we received it, and then maybe that year the anointing was intercession, you know, for that high priest and for that generation. And now you got all these things coming together, and then with your anointing, and then you pass it on to the next. See, what, what happens in the church or what's happening in the church these days is that that's not happening. There's no transfer. Everyone wants to kind of do their own thing. You know, everyone wants to, you know, uh, be their own man or whatnot. And so you don't have to turn there just for time's sake, but I'll read this. Jeremiah 6.16. That's what the Lord says. Through Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. This is what we're talking about. It's the ancient paths, right? It's generational transfer. It's going back, you know, to, to the successes and, and what's happened. It's taking those things forward, right? Mixing with what God has given to you as a generation and then passing it on to the next one, right? This is what we mean by generational transfer. And one of the things we learn from history is that we don't learn from our history. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really sad thing. You know, but when you look through the scriptures, it says God, right, is always announced as the God of three generations. What does he say? He says, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Right? That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't an accident. Right? God was very particular about his self-revelation, that he was a God of three generations. When God moves, right, he moves generationally. Right? You always have to remember that. He always moves generationally. You know, when, when I... Uh, for me personally, a huge impetus for me to get my act together was the fact that I knew that I wanted to have kids. You know, and because there's a, you can either have a positive generational transfer or you can have a negative generational transfer, right? I mean, you look at yourself and you're pretty jacked up already, right? Imagine you're going to take all that junk and then give it to your kids. I know you guys would be happy about that. You know, I'm sure your kids won't be too happy about that either, you know, and stuff. And so you can make a choice and a decision. How this manifested for me, you know, is uh, uh, part of my testimony. I call this my life message. And I felt like God really put something in my heart in this way. And, it was, and it was, a lot of it's manifested in actually my relationship with my own dad. And uh, what ended up happening was um, 
I ended up having this dream one night, and, you know, things in life were going really well. You know, uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was a campus pastor at a, a large Christian university. You know, uh, uh, I had just bought my first home, you know, uh, in uh, Southern California, you know, about a mile and a half away from Newport Beach. And, uh, um, you know, financially, spiritually, you know, uh, I was getting recruited by all kinds of people. And, and you know, th- I mean, things were moving along well, but yet even in that... I felt like there was a ceiling, and I just couldn't quite penetrate. I, I felt stuck. And I don't know if you ever felt like this before, but I knew that God wanted to do this. He was doing a deep work in me in that way. I ended up having this dream, and I recognized uh, why I was stuck. There was a, I, was, I was doing my quiet time, and I got into Malachi. At the end of Malachi chapter 4, he actually ends the Old Testament with a warning of a curse. Right? And he says, before the great and terrible day, I will send the, the spirit of Elijah, and he will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the, the children of the fathers, lest I come and strike this land with a curse. And the Old Testament closes like that, right? I'm mean, kind of a weird way to close, you know, but it, it ends with a warning and a curse, you know. And so, you know, I, I begin to see that and I says, man, is maybe there's something with my dad and, and whatnot. So I end up having this dream. And in my dream, my, my parents are, uh, at that time, they were missionaries in Uzbekistan. And, uh, um, and so I, I went to, I went on, on you know, uh, to my dad in my dream. And I remember kneeling before my dad and just kind of repenting for being a, bad son, you know, and all these things. I'll get into that a little bit later. And then uh, I, I, I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I know that you love me. I, I know, you know, uh, I, I know, but I, I told him, I said, but you know what? I've never heard you say that to me in my life. And that was true. I had never heard him say that to me. You know, and I said, I never heard you say that you're proud of me. You know, and I said, Dad, will you tell me that you love me and you're proud of me? You know, and I remember grabbing his hand and I put it over my, you know, over my head. You know, and he prayed for me. And, and I, in, my, in my dream, I just started weeping. I mean, I was crying. I, I woke up, literally my pillow was soaking wet. You know, and I could barely open my eyes because, you know, I got some major eye boogers, right, and stuff. And <laughs> it was just one of those things. And, and it was just a, such a surreal experience. You know, um, in that season, actually, I was, I was in this very long fast. The first time I ever fasted like this. And I was in this period of fasting, and... Um, I, I ended my fast. I wanted my senior pastor uh, to break the fast for me on my 41st day. And so I came to the church, you know, and I said, hey, pastor, can you break my fast? You know, but I said, just me and you, you know, like, you know, no, no one else, just, just me and you, right? And he goes, well, come in the morning, right? So I came in the morning, and wouldn't you know a Korean pastor, right? He does it in front of everybody, right? So he lays the communion table, you know, for one and so I come up after the service, and then, you know, he announces the whole church. Oh, Pastor Song has been fasting and stuff, and so we're going to bless him. He asked me to break the fast, and so we're going to come and bless him. So I came, so went to the front, and he served me the communion. And, and I, honestly, the fast was very difficult, right? I mean, not only was I hungry, I was grouchy. You know, um, I really didn't feel any closer to God. I mean, just honestly speaking. In fact, what ended up happening is, towards the end of the fast, I felt so far away from God, I started going to church at night. You know, I'd get in about 11 o'clock, and I'd pray until the morning prayer session started about 5.30, right? Because I was, I was like, you know, I thought I would get like an angelic visitation or something. You know, I'm, this is like my spiritual merit badge, right? You know, I think everyone should do one of these long fasts as a Christian, you know, at least once in their life. You know, but nothing's happening. And so I would just come to church and pray more out of frustration than anything else. And so I finally get to the thing. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's when I break the fast, is that's when I'm going to see some good stuff, right? And so... I, so he gives me the communion wafer. I put it in my mouth and nothing. I mean, it kind of tasted good, right? But out of that, nothing happened. And then he put the juice and he put it in my hand. And it was an incredible experience. He put the juice and I just started shaking, right? Just the fear, the presence of God. And I remember him saying, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And I remember taking a drink of that. And just, as, I mean, as, as I was drinking, I just started weeping. I mean, just this heaviness just coming over me. I eventually got on my knees and then on my face to the ground. And then my senior pastor came and started praying for me, you know, a Korean style, right? You know, I was like, uh, you know, doing this the whole time. And then, and then afterwards, I felt this hand on my head. And I, and it, I heard this voice. I, it wasn't audible, but it was, it was as if it was an audible voice to me. And I heard this voice as, Sam, you're my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. Do whatever you want, and I'm going to bless you. Right? And I was like, whoa. It was amazing because I, I had been studying Matthew chapter 3. You know, and if you know Matthew, and I think Pastor Christian alluded to it earlier today, in Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, Jesus is baptized. Right? The Spirit of God comes upon him, and a voice cries out from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. 
right? But, but if, you, if you look at that, and I know we have a lot of leaders here, right? But that's the key to leadership success, right? If you, I mean, if you can grab a hold, if you can have this dual encounter with God, right? The first one is the Spirit of God has come over you, right? I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. The Spirit of Jesus needs to, I mean, put, be put inside of you, right? And you need to have an encounter with God in that way. But also, and I, would, I would actually say, actually even more important than that, Right, is you need to hear the voice of the Lord. You need to have an encounter with the Father that says, You're my son. I'm proud of you. I love you. You know what happens when people are spiritually gifted but don't have the identity? Right? They're slaves. Right? They'll be working all the time to get people's attention. You know, they'll be working for merit badges. You know, they'll be working to get the pastor's attention. They'll be working to try to get God's attention. You know, and their service would be futile in a certain way, right? Because they'll be coming out of their insecurities, you know, and, and all of their junk will be coming out during that time. And so you need to have the Spirit of God and you need to have the identity of Christ burned inside of you. You know, and, and if you look at the text, right, how many miracles did Jesus do in that before he got baptized? Zero. How many sermons did he preach? None. Why would the father be proud of the son? Right? Because the father is proud of his children. It's a simple truth. You know, and if you can get that identity inside of your spirit, everything changes. You know, I tell you what, I literally, I got up from that place, totally changed. Because, you know, after that day, you know what I realized? I've got nothing to prove to anybody. Got nothing to prove. Right? You know, I mean, you're sitting here thinking, man, how long is this guy going to talk? I don't care. You know, I mean, I do care. So, you know, but it's like, I don't need your approval. I don't need anyone's approval. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, thank you. I don't, I don't, you know, it, it, it doesn't affect, right? You have nothing else to prove to anybody because God, the creator of the universe, loves you. Really, that's, that's really what it's all about. So I had this adventure, you know, and uh, I mean, cut, cut the story short and whatnot. If, I think you could listen to it on the other campus, a little longer extended version of it. Right, and I eventually end up having my dad. Right, and as soon as this happened, I began to realize and recognize that I had some issues with my dad. Mostly my fault, you know. And one of the things, the cynicism and this kind of like rebelliousness, I began to trace back where it was, and it all started when I was a little kid. And uh, my brother and I, we grew up in in in, in Chicago. I lived in Skokie. It was, it was very uh, a huge Jewish neighborhood. Now there's tons of Koreans there. When we were there, there were no Koreans at all. And what happened when, I, when we were there is my dad would say, you know, hey, we're going to go on vacation, you know, which was shocking to me because, you know, growing up in this huge Jewish community, we thought only white people went on vacation, right, <laughs> and stuff. And so, you know, so here we are. What, really? And we were, like, shocked, you know. And so we, we, co- we come to, you know, this place, and my dad said, where do you want to go? And I said, we want to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. My first love is baseball. I just love baseball. You know, it was just, you know, it was one of those things that attracted me when I was a little kid, and I, that's, that's still my first love. And so, you know, I got this whole baseball thing. So that's, we want to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And the one year would come, and, you know, summer we'd be all excited to go. And my dad would say, sorry, we can't go this year, right? We got no money. But, you know, as a little kid, right, you know, it's like seven years old. Okay, oh, no problem. All right, next year we're going to go. Next year would come along. Right? My dad said, oh, sorry, we don't have any time this year. I'd be like, oh, okay, okay. All right, next year. We're going to go next year. Next year would come along. Sorry, we don't have any money. You know, and, you know, I mean, as a little kid, you understand that, right? Or I mean, as an adult, but as a little kid, you don't get that at all. And what is happening is the cynicism began to rise up. So my dad would say to us, hey, we're going to go to McDonald's. And I would say, no, we're not. You say we're going to go to McDonald's, but we're really not going to go. Come on. We've heard this many times before. And literally, I became very cynical, very rebellious, and that led to a real drift in our relationship. What ended up happening is uh, uh, I began to realize all these things, and I had so many things to talk to my dad about. And what ended up happening is uh, he was going to come to furlough in the U.S., you know, and they were going to come through New York. And uh, I had this, just this epiphany. You know, it said that where the father couldn't take the son, the son's going to take the father. And so I ended up, from right then, I looked at the calendar. It was another 40 days before I was going to New York. I said, you know, I'm going to fast. You know, it was hard. I got hungry. I was tired. But every time I felt like eating or something, I just said, Lord, I'm breaking a curse off my family. This is not just for me. This is not just me and my dad. It's for my kids growing up. It's for my kids' kids and my kids' kids' kids that will grow up. It's generational transfer. You know, and so we got there. 
40 days. My dad had no idea what's going on. The 41st day, I woke up early in the morning, went down to the Jewish deli, got a roll, got some grape juice, laid out the coffee table in the hotel, and I did exactly in the dream. I, I put the juice and in, in the, in the bread. I talked to my dad. I said, Dad, I've been fasting these last 40 days just for you. And, and I shared this whole story with my dad, and, and I said, Dad, will you bless me? I need your blessing. There is a ceiling above my head. I can't go anywhere. I need your blessing. You know, and, uh, and you know, I, I didn't have to force his hand on me this time. It, my mom and dad actually leapt off the couch and just embraced me, just prayed. And just, just this weight comes off. You know, and, and, and out of that, really, this, this message comes forth. You know, our, our culture, in a lot of ways, tells us to, to make our own way. You know, it, it tells us to, you know, be your own man. You know, I don't know how many Americans are here, right? But be the self-made man, the frontier spirit. I tell you, that is so unbiblical. It is so unbiblical, right? It's this, this declaration of independence. I mean, that part is cool, right? But the, 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 the leading into the life of the church is very uncool, right? Because what God declares is a declaration of dependence. You know, that, that, that he's, he's called us into this life. We become such a culture of convenience, Right, you know, like, like, you know, people pick churches because the worship team is too loud, too soft, you know, too rock, you know, too country, you know what I mean, and stuff. When did the worship become about you? You know what I mean? I thought it was about Jesus the whole time. I thought we're here just to worship Him and we'd lose ourselves in Him. But it's about, man, that bass player, man, that guy was too loud, you know, or, or he, you know, he's not cool enough, you know, he didn't do dang, 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 he didn't do this thing, and, you know, we, you know what I mean? And all these ridiculous things that, that we make, you know, the, the, our culture of convenience now. We move churches because the carpet's not good or the ceiling is too low, you know, or the PowerPoint is messed up. You know, we, we do all these ridiculous things and because it's become so convenient, right? So convenient. You know, I, I, I was uh, uh, talking to this uh, NK missionary uh, uh, was a few years ago and he relayed this story and I said it so well and he says there's guys that come through a lot of Americans and people you know that want to go into North Korea and really die for North Korea you know and they come in we're here for Korea we're going to die in North Korea we're going to live for Jesus and all these things but, but don't give me any kimchi you know and stuff and you know this guy would be, look at this says, what? you're going to die for Jesus but don't give me any kimchi? you're like in Korea man you know and stuff, and, and, and he says some of these missionaries that would come, and they end up being very short term, right? Because, and they're like, we're going to die for North Korea, we're going to live for Jesus. You know, but then they would, you know, in their food in, in their apartments, they would label all their food and stuff, and, you know, and this is my food, and then someone would eat an egg. <gasps> Who ate my egg? Who ate my egg? And, and they would start fighting about an egg. But I want to die for Jesus. I want to die for North Korea, right? It's, it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? And so, but that's, a lot of us. Come on, let's be real for a second, you know. Jesus, I love you, but Pastor Christian, don't ask me to come to that meeting, man. I'm kind of busy, you know. I'm an important person, right? You know, like, don't, you know, I just give you a little bit. Don't ask for too much from me, right? When, when did that happen, right? But I'm going to die for Jesus, right? I'm going to live for the nations, right? But just these simple things that we're unwilling to give up. I mean, it almost becomes ridiculous in many ways. But that's our culture. That's what we've made the modern church in so many ways. No wonder people don't like to come to church. I mean, have you ever thought about that for a moment, right? You know, because we're hypocrites in so many ways. We sing the most beautiful songs and live the most unbeautiful lives. Right? That's, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. You know, and, and, and so Jesus, you know, begins to speak to us in this way. And, and he initiated something 2,000 years ago. That combats the culture of convenience, the spirit of independence. And so we call sonship or daughtership. True sonship. You know, there's a lot of stuff written about spiritual fathering and whatnot. You know, there's hardly anything written about sonship at all. You know, I, I mean, I, I've looked, right? There's, there's nothing. There's actually one really good book, you know, uh, but, but that's it. But you can't even find it. You know, it's this obscure guy from Washington who wrote this book. You know, but, but, but there, there's something there. When I was with the call and how this really manifested for me, when I was with the call, I, uh, um, uh, you know, we, we led this tour. You know, we were gone for four months in a motorhome after we had this huge event in D.C. And I had my spiritual daughter with me on the trip. It was a, it was a team of, of, of preachers and intercessors, basically. You know, and I had my spiritual daughter was one of the intercessors. She was a sophomore at UCLA and took, took the year off school to join us on this tour in D.C. And then, you know, continue on to the United States. 
And during that time, at the end of the tour, our leaders at the call basically asked us if we would do this full time. You know, I mean, it was pretty hard. We slept in someone else's house every night of the week. We were in different cities almost every day. I mean, it was a crazy trip, right, in this huge motorhome. You know, and, uh, and they asked us, would you do this full time? And we're like, hmm. You know, I mean, I would have to leave, you know, what I was doing. She'd have to quit school. You know, our whole team, they're all different guys. Uh, um, actually, the only kid that really went for it was actually Jesse Engel, which is Lou's son, right? He was, he was on fire for it. You know, and, and so we, we started praying. And then I went to my, my spiritual daughter, Jessica. I said, Jessica, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to, like, quit school? Your parents are going to kill you, you know? And, I mean, what's, what's, what's going to happen, this thing? I remember what she said, and, and right then, something started churning inside of me. It says, Pastor Sam, you're my spiritual father, right? Where you go, I'll go, because I know the blessing follows. You know, and I was like, you know, for me, I was scared. I was like, I don't want that responsibility, man. You know, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, like, hey, don't, don't do that to me, you know, kind of thing. But then I begin to really recognize the spiritual dynamic, Right? And so I have a few points. I know I don't have that much time, so we'll run through this real quick. Number one, a true son lays down his vision and serves the vision of the father, seeks his success. Right? A true son lays down his vision and serves the vision of the father, seeks his success. Right? I'll give you a, a prototypical person in the scriptures, Joseph. Joseph had the heart of a son. Right? In Genesis, you don't have to turn there, but if you're writing notes, Genesis 39.4, right? he comes into Potiphar's house. What does he do? Joseph doesn't seek his success. He seeks the success of his father. He serves Potiphar's vision. And what happens? God blesses Joseph and Potiphar. Right? Then, well, the story continues on. You know, Potiphar's got a skanky wife. A lot of bad things happen. Right? <laughs> Next thing you know, in, in, chapter, in, in verse 22... He ends up being in jail, right? So now he's in, the, he's in jail. What does Joseph do? Because Joseph has a heart of a son. He's not serving his own vision. He's serving the father's vision. The father at that time was a chief jailer. What happens? Joseph gets elevated, right? In charge of the whole prison system. I mean, pretty amazing story. You know, serves the chief jailer's vision. You know, he's in jail for a while. You know, has a vision, dream, all these things happen. Next thing you know, what happens? He's in Pharaoh's house. He doesn't serve his own vision. He serves Pharaoh's vision, seeks his success. God elevates Joseph. And Joseph, right, second in charge of all of Egypt. And if you know the story, actually, Joseph literally saves Egypt. But Joseph's servants sought the success of his fathers. You know, there's a, a famous story. D.L. Moody was uh, preaching in a very young age and uh, um, Gave uh, just a horrible, horrible message. I mean, people were falling asleep. You know, he was just all over the place. After this bad sermon, this old lady walks up to the front as he's leaving the church. Walks up to Moody and takes her hand, his hand and says, Pastor Moody, that was a bad message today. You know, and she, this is the next word she said, Forgive me for not praying for you harder. Right? She was a daughter. You know, you could be someone preaching whatnot and just you know see there's sonship and forgive my language but there's also being a bastard right kind of like the family but not really you know and so when you got a son like this daughter right that says forgive me for not praying for you pastor right or you have the bastard say that was a crap message man i ain't coming back here you know or i couldn't believe that guy's exegesis man i was all over the place you know i mean that didn't fit and all these things and that's a bastard that's not a, that's not the son of a house you know what I mean? That's an illegitimate child in many ways. And so, and so there's, there's, a, there's a difference there. When you lay down your vision, God honors. There's this screwy thinking in our mind that says, I've got to serve my own vision. I've got to make my own way. It's I've got to get mine, right? Me, myself, and I. That's totally demonic, right? Because, see, when you lay down your vision and you serve someone else's vision, right, you seek their success, your success is attached to that numerically, exponentially. Something happens in that way. But we think, no, i got to do my own thing because, you know, it's about me. It's not about you. You know, and the moment you begin to lay down your life and lay down your priorities, lay down your ambitions, and you go serve and seek someone else, God elevates you. You know, because there's going to be one day where you're going to go after your own, where God's going to give you that vision, and you're going to need people to come alongside as well. But if you're not a father... Right? Or a good father because you're not a good son. 
right? And it continues on. You know, I, I went through this journey myself, you know, and I realized I need to be a good son. And so I, I basically put myself under a pastor, you know, for a few years, didn't get any salary from the church. Just, I just served and served and served. For, actually, for two years, I did announcements at church. That was pr- basically my primary role, you know, and, you know, to make a living, I would actually speak at, at retreats and things, you know, as well, you know, but, but primarily in church, I was doing announcements and helping in any way possible, just learning how to be a son. You know, then eventually I came to Hong Kong and ended up planning our own church in that way. All right, but when you lay down your vision, God honors. Look, Moses the father, who led people into the promised land? Right? It was the son. It was the son. Right? David, the king, the father. Who builds the temple? The son does. Right? It's generational transfer. All right, I give you a, I give you a prototypical picture. This is a case study, right? We have the son, Solomon. Serves his father's vision. Lays down his rights. Serves his vision. And you have the bastard child who was a son, but not really Absalom. Look at this picture. Solomon builds the temple. Absalom dies a horrible death. Absalom, because he wasn't a son, he actually tried to take the authority, usurp the authority from David, his father. Actually caused David to flee because he didn't want to fight against his son. He got troops together to fight his own dad and take the kingdom away from him. And he dies a horrible death. You have the son, Solomon, who seeks his father's vision. And what happens, right? He gets to build a temple. Right? He gets to reap in the glory. And then he's got this wisdom that people from all over the world come to listen to. Can you imagine? See, you don't lose out when you lay down. See, the, the kingdom of God is an inverse relationship. Right? You want to be rich? You need to be poor. You want to be great? You need to be small. Right? Servant of all. Right? It's this inverse. And in our Western mind, we can't quite understand it, but the Bible is Eastern. Right? We can handle contradictions. Because it's really not a contradiction if you really think about it. You, you know what I mean? And stuff. And so, I mean, that's why Asians should know the Bible better than anybody else. Because it's written in our family blood, you know. Well, not our family blood, but, you know, in our, in our culture in that way. And so there's something about this, right? Absalom does it his way, and he dies a tragic death. David, or Solomon, right, lays down. Serves his father's vision. And what happens? Right? He builds the temple. Blessing after blessing after blessing. You know, we, we, we say this, right? You know, and, and right? it's not my way. It's Yahweh. Right? It's, it's not my way. Right? It's God's way. You know, and, and as soon as you get that inside of your spirit, you're going to live the most incredible Christian life. I mean, not even Christian life. Just life in general. Number two. I'll go to this real quick. A true, son, a true son stays no matter what. A true son stays no matter what. In Ruth, we have this really cool picture of Naomi, right? And Naomi is like the kiss of death, right? Naomi's got, her husband dies. Naomi's got two sons that are married to these two foreign women. They die as well, right? And so Naomi, you know, they basically are in this discussion. Naomi basically tells, you know, uh, Ruth and the other daughter says, you guys need to leave. I am cursed, Right? So you go back to your families, go back to your tribes, and go find good husbands, and let me just die in peace, basically. You know, but remember what one of the daughters, she left, and she went out. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but she was illegitimate. You know? But what happens? The true daughter stays. And remember what she says? She says, no, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And she stays and clings to Naomi. Naomi tells, go, go. And says, no, I'm staying with you no matter what. A true son, a true daughter stays no matter what. Right? No matter if it's tough, right? The going gets tough one day, you know, you know, the, the, Vince Lombardi, right? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. No, when the going gets tough, the tough stay. And they fight. Right? It's, 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 it's the key. You know, a true son does not run out when the going gets tough. When you stay and fight, God honors. So you think, you know, poor Ruth, oh, I can't believe, you know, she's gonna be an old maid. You know, a typical story, live with her mother-in-law, die of old age. No, man, that's not how God does it. Right? When you lay down, God works. You know, and would you know it, God brings this studly guy into town named Boaz. You know, could you imagine any more studlier name than Boaz, you know? <laughs> I mean, he comes in, and remember this story? What does he, what does he say? He meets Ruth. Right? This whole incident is happening, and he's and he, I mean, just attracted to her. Because he says, I've heard about you. I've heard that you're an excellent woman. Because she stayed. You know, the reason why Ruth is so important, because if you go through the genealogy, actually Jesus came from this line. And if Ruth doesn't stay, Jesus comes through something else. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a pretty crazy, you know, situation here. 
right? She gets married. Incredible things happen. In, in, in uh, Second Kings, right, we have the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was the father, Elisha, the typical son. Elisha, you know, uh, Elijah basically knows he's, he's going to go off, you know, to be with the Lord. And so he's, he wants to lay his mantle. You know, Elisha basically, you know, stays. Remember, there's all these school of the prophets. Elijah is trying to get rid of Elisha. Go do your own thing. And Elisha actually goes and he burns all of his stuff. You know, his, his, his uh, farming instruments, he burns everything. I mean, he's basically said, I'm, I'm sold out for you, man. I'm, where are you going? I'm going to go. And he stays. And what happens? He became a double portion son. If you look through the scriptures, you know, in uh, Elijah did X amount of miracles. You go through it, Elisha did exactly double the miracles. Right? In particular, if you want to see a picture, Elisha and Elijah both raised the boy from the dead. Elijah lays on the boy three times. Elisha, I want to suggest to you, laid on the boy one and a half times. Double portion, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's just, it, it's so powerful. But why did he receive double portion? Why, did, why besides the, other, the school of the prophets? Right? Because he was a true son and he stayed no matter what. Number three, a true son is always looking for opportunities to serve. A true son is always looking for opportunities to serve. In 2 Samuel 23, we see David and his mighty men. David's mighty men were a bunch of knuckleheads. They owed money to the government, the taxes, you know, they were thieves, you know. I mean, they were like the, 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 you know, the scum of the earth in many ways. But because David was a father, he drew them all together. He's walking around, he's hiding from the Philistines in a cave, and he says this. He says, oh man, what I wouldn't give to get a drink from the well in the holy city. And see, these mighty men, they had a heart of a son. They were always looking for opportunities to serve. And so as soon as they heard that, they broke through the garrison, killed I don't know how many hundreds of people, went and got water, brought it back before David. and says, here, master, here's the water. And David was a father, so he just poured out as an offering before the Lord. And he says, how can I drink this? This is the blood of all these men, right? But they had the, it, was, it was the heart to serve. They were always looking. They, were, they, they had antennas up, looking to serve and do something. And I mean, they, they weren't just, at, you know, coming around and say, oh, you serve me, you know, and this is, this is what the equation is going to be like. They're always looking to do something, right? Just, just waiting, you know, for, for whatever word, you know, David had to say. You know, I mean, you know, in, in our modern day, you know, if David was here, he could have said, man, what I wouldn't do for a Krispy Kreme donut, right? And the son, they're gone, you know. I had guys like that in our youth group. Right? I mean, I, I, and I would sit there and I, I would just, you know, be like, man, you know, I, I wouldn't go for, you know, for a big burger right now. And next thing you know, about 10 minutes later, these guys would come in with this huge burger. And I'd be like, well, hey, where'd you get this? You know, but they were just looking for opportunities to serve. They, they didn't have to be asked to do stuff. You know, like in the family setting, right? You know, like we always complain about our parents nagging us and stuff all the time. You know why they nag you? Because you don't listen, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not rocket science, right? If you listened, they wouldn't nag you. If you just served, right, and, and did what you're supposed to do, your, your home life would be so much more peaceful, right? But, but, but we, don't, we don't understand these things, and we end up blaming our parents. Oh, my mom and dad nag me all the time. No, it's because you're so disobedient, right? Because you're, you're not acting like a son, even in your own house. Right? A true son is always looking for opportunities to serve. Then, you know, always, you know, people always ask me this question. Well, Pastor Sam, what if the leaders suck? What if my parents are just horrible parents? What if my parents beat my mom all the time? You know, and, and what if he gets drunk all the time and gambles and loses all our money? Do I still have to be a son? Yeah, you still do. Right? My last point, number four. A true son covers the nakedness of their father. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, I'll read this. It says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be a servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be a servant. So we have Noah, 
Noah has, has a lot of harvest. He gets happy. He drinks his own wine. Gets totally plastered, right? On top of that, he's in his tent making a ruckus, and he strips off, and he gets naked. I mean, this is quite a scene, right? Ham happens to be strolling by the tent, looks inside the tent, and sees his dad naked, you know, and what does he do? He grabs his brothers. Hey, Shem, Jimmy, come over here, man. Look, dad's naked. Check him out, man. Right? So they come. They, the sons come back because, see, the two sons, they were true sons. So what do they do? They take a shawl. They walk backwards. They cover his nakedness. You know, the morning wakes up. And this is the key. Noah wakes up in the morning. He realized what had happened to him. And look what he says. Verse 25. Cursed be. Is it Ham? No. It's Canaan. Canaan was Ham's son. It's generational transfer. Right? You know, the curse moved to the next generation. And he said, cursed be Canaan. He'll be a servant of servants. Right? To all of his brothers. I mean, just crazy. Right? Now, negative transfer took place. Because Ham was not a son. His two other brothers, what did he say? Bless Shem. Bless Jacob. Enlarge their tents. This was a, this was a common uh, uh, Hebrew idiom, a phrase. Right? That, that meant just abundant blessing and, and provision. You know, that, that comes over. Right? Enlarge, you know, uh, this person's estate and all these things. And this is what happens because they were true, right? True sons. They cover the nakedness of their father. You know, your leaders, they're going to make mistakes. Pastor Christian, Pastor, they're going to make mistakes, right? Pastor Marcus, you know, I mean, no one's perfect, right? But see, a son covers their nakedness. A bastard exposes nakedness. He says, oh, man, do you see that guy? Oh, I can't believe, you know. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times where you'll have to expose. You'll have to... Tell someone. But you go through the proper channels, right? That's what they have church government for. You know, you talk to the leaders, right? Because if someone's hurting someone and these kind of things happening, we want to be more aware of these things. But the key to the heart of this is that you cover the nakedness. You know, in Second Samuel uh, chapter 24, remember Saul is going after David, right? You know, his, his men are saying, hey, man, Saul's trying to kill you. Why don't you try to kill him? You know, it's an easy equation. And what does David say? He says, I will not touch God's anointed. David was a son. He understood that. He understood spiritual principles. I will not touch it. That's, that's up for God to take care of, right? I'm not, I'm not part of that equation. You know, and, and, you know, honestly, think about it this way, right? What is one of the names of the devil, right? He is called the accuser of the brethren. Did you know the moment you start accusing the brethren, guess what? You start doing the devil's work. Good job, right? I mean, really, isn't it so simple? He's the accuser of the brethren. The moment you start accusing the brethren, Right, you know, gossiping, doing all kinds of things that you shouldn't be doing. As soon as you start doing that, you start doing the devil's work. Right? No wonder there's so much mess in the church these days. You know, I have a, a, a spiritual son who actually just joined our staff. And when I was a youth pastor, you know, I, I was pretty mean. I mean, I'm just honest, right? I, I think most people think I'm still pretty mean, you know. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I was young. You know, I just thought that, you know, you have to be really, really strict, you know, and you know, lay the line all the time. And I used to yell at my kids all the time and whatnot. I actually, since then, I actually went and apologized to all of them, you know. And, uh, um, and we used to have this thing where, where myself and uh, Pastor Eugene, and we had the thing that you say, I used to hurt them, and Eugene would heal them, you know. And what would happen is I would yell at my kids and things would happen, and people would always go to Pastor Eugene and say, oh, Pastor Sam said this to me, and, oh, you know, they're all complain, right? But see, Eugene was a son, you know, and, and, and he could have usurped the authority and says, oh, yeah. He's kind of a jerk, isn't he? You know, in fact, you know, I'm going to go plant a church. Why don't you come join me in my new church plan? You know, church splits happen like this all the time, right? People complain or, you know, and people are going to complain because we're sinful, right? You know, but it, the second in charge or the third in charge. And so they, you know, people start coming to them and start really liking it. You know, now they want to be in charge. I could do better than that person, you know, and all kinds of mess happens. Eugene could have done that, but, you know, he, he's covered my nakedness. He says, oh, you don't really understand, Pastor Sam. You know, he loves you. He wants the best for you. So he, he says it in this way and whatnot and just diffuses the whole issue, right? A true son, right? A true son covers the nakedness of their father. You know, all these things that I'm sharing with you, it's, uh, it's difficult things. I know, right? But you know what? You know when we said that we want to be like Jesus? Did you know all the stuff that I'm talking about is actually Jesus? You know, like, this is the Jesus lifestyle. You know, Jesus said things like, I do nothing on my own initiative, right? I only do what I see the Father doing. 
You know, he says things in John, like, I only do the things that are pleasing to him. You know, we're, uh, we are in this kind of weird, creative idea thinking that we need to be original. Did you know the, the most unoriginal person on the face of the planet was Jesus? Because he didn't do nothing on his own initiative. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He was so unoriginal, right? But that's who he was, right? He laid down his vision. And he served his father's vision. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, let this cup pass before me, but not my will. Let your will be done. Right? He laid down his vision and he served his father's vision. Right? He stays no matter what. You know, he could have done all kinds of stuff. He could have married Mary Magdalene, lived a nice life, right, in the suburbs of Palestine and enjoy, you know, 2.5 kids and... You know, 2.5 cars or chariots or whatever they had back in those days. He could have done all these things. No, he didn't. He stayed. He stayed to his purpose. He stayed to the call of his life. And the son was always looking for opportunities to serve. In fact, that was one of his greatest lessons that he was trying to teach his guys all the time, is that you are the servant of all. You know, obviously his, his father was quite brilliant, right? So he didn't have to cover his nakedness. You know, but he covered the nakedness of his disciples many, many, many times. You know, we're talking about Jesus here. You know, and don't say, oh, Pastor Sam, that's, that's hard. How can, how can we do that? Hey, when you sign up for the kingdom, this is what you signed up for, right? You didn't sign up just say, you know, okay, listen, okay? This, I may never be back here again, so you don't have to like what I say, right? <laughs> if you are just coming to church on Sunday for some religious duty, just don't show up. You know, I mean, I don't want to sound rude and stuff, but what's the point? I mean, what, what, I mean, what's the point? If this is a Christian game or something, what's the point of this? Right? Jesus Christ came and he died so that we can experience so much more life than we're experiencing right now. You know, and, and I'm, this, is, this is my heart. This is my spirit speaking, right? I'm telling you, some of you guys are missing out. And the greatest enemy of your soul is yourself. Your unwillingness to bend. Right? I'm not trying to be mean or anything like that, but you, you just hear me out. There's an unwillingness to bend. An unwillingness to come under leadership. Right? An unwillingness to submit. You know, and, and it's, I, I'm not trying to make you a soldier you know, and just a yes person and whatnot. Because, I mean, you've got to be thinking people, right? You know, but but, but it's, as a heart of a son, as a heart of a daughter, you know, it's, it's coming, it's not, it's not adversarial, right? We're on the same team. Because, you know, you've heard the phrase before, right? You can be part of the problem or part of the solution, right? You know what, you know what? sonship is being part of the solution. It, it, it doesn't mean that everything's perfect, right? But it means you're there to work the problem out. There's, there's a lot of problems, right? A bastard, you know what they do is they just point out problems all the time. Oh, this church has got this, this church has got that, this, you know, and on and on and on, right? The son says, yeah, we got some problems, but we're going to work it out, right? Because this is my house, right? This is what we do together in this place. It's, it's, a, it's a total mentality shift. It's a mind change, a paradigm shift, right? And, and, and this is what Jesus calls us to, right? When you said, Jesus, come into my life, you gave up your rights. You were supposed to be dead. You know, Chuck Swindoll, he says it so beautifully. He says, the problem with living sacrifices is we always get ourselves off the altar, Right, it's very unfortunate, right? About three of you guys got that, it's okay. You know. The rest of you ask the three and maybe you get it as well. You know, there's something profound in that. Amen? Let's close our eyes. Thank you for the grace to go a little extra. That series is actually about six hours long. And so we kinda did a mini quick version here. But if you give me a little bit of liberty as we minister today, and I know the morning service was a little different than this service, and I want to try to do a little something today. In relation to this issue of generational transfer, and Pastor Christian, what's the, what's the average age of this congregation? Oh, same as the other one. A little older, right? Okay. I, I, I don't know how this is going to work, but we'll just do it this way. If you're 30 years or over, okay, I'm going to ask you to come up to the front. Mm-hmm.
especially particularly if you're married, right? In fact, let's do that first. If you're married, I want you to come to the front. Or if you're a dad, especially. <clears throat> well, a lot of single people in here, man. Our churches need to hook up. <laughs> okay, okay. There's not enough married people. If you're 30 years or older, I want you to come up to the front. You're going to represent the older generation. Forgive me if you think you're young, okay? You are young, but come up. 30 years or over. I want you to face the audience. So just get in one line. Ken, aren't you 30 years or older? What are you guys doing, man? Yeah, my SP people too. So almost everyone. I want you to come up. Our church is a little older than you guys. I want you to face the audience here. We're just going to have a, a short ministry time. And I, and I felt like, you know, especially on the drive here, just praying a bit and you know that that we just want to impart something to you right especially in this area of transfer you know and there's probably some of you that when i was talking about my testimony with my dad and i felt like something resonated with you you know that maybe that you were longing for something like that in your own life you know just just to have a, a an older figure you know you know in, in the scriptures you know god is neither male nor female you know that right but god revealed himself to us as a father you know, he could have revealed himself as a mother. In fact, there is that revelation in the scriptures. And so what the enemy does is he tries to break that image of the Father in our lives so that when we look at the Heavenly Father, we mirror through our earthly Father. And so there's a lot of brokenness and damage there. You know, it, it, and that's why, you know, a lot of dads are jacked up and we have a lot of father issues. Trust me, if God revealed himself to us as a mother and we would call her Mother God, our moms would be jacked up because the enemy would be working overtime. So don't just blame the dads. It's, it's part of the position. Right, and so you know, so you have to understand there is a blessing that comes. I know that a lot of these guys, some are fathers, and some you know are just older, right? And so you just receive that from the Lord, you know. And if you're here today, right, and you have an issue with elders or older people, or you know, or maybe you just never really heard, you know, uh, that voice from heaven that says, "You're my son, you're my daughter," I am pleased with you. Right? And, and, all, and all I want you to do is I just want you to come up just stand in front of one of these people here right? and as a, an act of submission and humility I'm just going to invite you to kneel in front of them right? you're not kneeling to them right? It's, you're kneeling to the Lord and stuff. but as an act of humility I just want to encourage you to come and they're just going to pray for you and, you, and, and something powerful is going to happen right? there's, there's an anointing it's the spirit of Elijah Right, that comes and turns hearts, you know. And and if and if you have an issue with your dad or your mom and whatnot, you come and you let them stand in, in the stead of your parents, and you pray to that end that this moment will happen in your life as well in your family, you know. Whatever the case may be, maybe you're dealing with so many insecurities in your life and all kinds of stuff, right? I, I want to invite you to come and just kneel and let the Holy Spirit do His work in your life. Does that sound okay? And we can just play something. Why just come? Just get in front, just kneel before, you know, one of our people here and just wait to see what God does as the Lord is just kind of stirring in you. Thank you, God.